Today, we're talking with Jake Glanville, founding partner and CEO of Distributed Bio, a global biotech company based in South San Francisco with technologies across antibody discovery, antibody optimization, and vaccine development. Jake has been featured on the Netflix series, Pandemic, and while Distributed Bio works with clients to identify antibodies in all therapeutic areas, the team has been recently spending a lot of resources, like many other biotech companies, on the current COVID crisis. But how did he achieve this success? What shaped Jake as a leader and a scientist? The answer surprised me, and I hope you enjoy hearing what he shared with Vital Science. Thank you so much for joining us today at Vital Science, Jake. Hey, thanks for having me on. I know I did not do your introduction the least bit of justice, so can you more accurately tell us about Distributed Bio and your role in the company? Sure. Distributed Bio is a computational immunoengineering group. That sounds like a mouthful, but it just means that we use math and computers to analyze the immune system, and we're doing it so that we can extract out medicines from the immune system. So our immune systems make antibodies, and it has been the drug of choice in all jawed vertebrates for hundreds of millions of years as a way to defend ourselves against viruses and bacteria and other nasty things that come to annoy our health. What we do with the computational immunoengineering is we use math and computers and high-throughput genomic sequencing instruments and other shiny technologies to help interrogate the immune system very quickly and efficiently. And we're doing this to help discover antibodies that could protect us against viruses, like the novel coronavirus, but they could also make an antibody against a plaque in the brain to help Alzheimer's or a receptor on the heart to protect from heart disease. They're really general, very powerful tools, antibodies. And the uh, use of high-throughput genomic sequencing and other computational methods has enabled distributed bio to produce antibodies against really challenging drug targets very easily. And so we work with 40, 50 different pharmaceutical companies at a time to develop antibodies against challenging targets that they may not want to do internally, and we do that work for them. That's been my background. Prior to founding Distributed Bio, I was doing computational immunoengineering work at Pfizer and before Pfizer at UC Berkeley. And then when I launched Distributed Bio in 2012, I also entered into and completed a PhD program at Stanford simultaneously in computational and systems immunology. This is a really exciting new field of being able to crack open the immune system and peer deep into the mysteries of why do we get autoimmune disease sometimes? When do we protect ourselves? And why do we sometimes not protect ourselves the way we expect? And we can use these fancy new tools, this math, the computers, and these high-throughput sequencing technologies to help understand these phenomenon and improve upon them and, and just do the blue-collar work of rolling up our sleeves and engineering really good medicines out of our immune systems. Your company's been very much in the news lately, um, pretty much household names at this point, and um, especially with the COVID crisis. Can you tell us about your progress on the treatment sure. the team is working on? Yeah, so we've had this pretty wild ride in 2020. Uh, prior to the coronavirus outbreak, we were already working on pandemic research. The, there was a Netflix documentary that came out called Pen Pandemic, How to Prevent an Outbreak. And my laboratory is one of the groups featured in that series. And my team had all gathered, including Sarah Ives, who's my project lead for our universal vaccine technology program, and a number of my other scientists uh, that week to go watch the premiere of this Netflix series. And I tried to warn everyone in my team, guys, like there's 10,000 things on Netflix. No one's going to watch this. But instead, 
we were on the front page of Netflix for the next six weeks because of the outbreak. That, that was the same week that China had to quarantine 57 million people. And then the following week after that, I flew out to Washington, D.C. to go to this conference called the BioThreats Meeting, which, as the name suggests, is where a bunch of people from around the world get together and they talk about bioterror agents and outbreaks. And the meeting was electric. People were, you know, these are, these are outbreak geeks in the middle of the outbreak of their lives. And so they were all jazzed up and worried and excited. And I saw Dr. Fauci present at that meeting. And already at that meeting, he was saying that this is January 28th. He's like, I just think that at this point, the, this outbreak is no longer containable in China. And I noticed that he wasn't shaking anybody's hands. And I had flown out there with my wife and my, at the time, three-month-old little daughter. And I realized that they were up on the fifth floor and the biothreats meeting was on the lobby. And I just suddenly occurred to me that all these people had flown in from around the world and it's possible this pathogen was in the room. And I think it spooked me that Fauci wasn't shaking anybody's hand. So I tactically retreated. He's a smart guy, so I want to listen to him. I went back upstairs and I had meetings scheduled with DARPA and with BARDA. And, you know, I have these pre-existing relationships with multiple um, arms of the military through Kratas to work on rapidly developing antibodies against novel bioagents. And so BARDA had to cancel their meeting because they were worried about Corona. DARPA had me in, but they said, look, I don't care about hantavirus or loss of virus. What can you do for the novel coronavirus? And I showed up and I presented a strategy, which is what the strategy that we ended up doing to them. And I said, listen, we need an antibody super fast. We have this technology to do that, but I don't even want to start with normal discovery to start from scratch to make a new antibody as a therapy. What I want to do is I want to go back to SARS, the outbreak from 2002, 2003. I'm like, there are a number of really well-studied antibodies that people spent a couple of years after the outbreak characterizing. So it was too late to be helpful against SARS, but those antibodies would have been amazing if SARS ever popped back up because they would block the spikes on the outside of the coronavirus, the SARS coronavirus, and neutralize it. They would neutralize it in vitro. And if you gave those antibodies to mice, they would no longer get SARS. They'd be protected. And by my analysis, the novel coronavirus was a cousin of SARS, and it hadn't really mutated that much. So I thought that we could use our Tumblr technology to engineer those antibodies to cross. And, then, and therefore, it's the fastest possible way that we can piggyback on years of existing research to essentially retrofit one of those anti-SARS antibodies to now be a potent neutralizer of the novel coronavirus. And so I presented this to them, and I called my team afterwards, Sharad, Dariekia, and Jack Wang. And I said, hey, guys, let's get it working on this right away. And so uh, we started cracking on it. We were still running all of our other programs. And over that next month, it was, we were ordering pieces of DNA and putting, you know, doing assemblies and doing all this various work. Uh, Jack working on engineering a piece of the virus that we wanted to go after. And Sherrod working on creating hundreds of millions of versions of those five antibodies that we wanted to adapt. And then you go into uh, March and things got pretty intense where suddenly there was the uh, shelter in place order. And so suddenly I go into my lab, we were already stressed out because the other company that shares the offices with us or shares half of the building, they had a COVID-19 case. And so they, they had shut down and scrubbed their side of the building. And then we're seeing the chief of police and the mayor of San Francisco on the TV telling everyone to go home. So I was stressed out because I looked at it and I'm like, wow, the very thing we're trying to fix uh, may stop us from continuing when we're close. But I couldn't ask my people to to stay, they were, you know, we basically had to vacate the building anyway because of um, because of the scrub from the other company. But I did talk with a limited number of my team members around the COVID-19 project. We could use this thing called an Exception 10B for essential biotechnology. 
And I said, they should go home and talk to their families. And if they felt like it, they could call me in the morning. And if we had a quorum, we could keep working on just that project. And I went home not knowing if we'd, you know, feeling kind of defeated, like we'd been, the success, we'd never know if we would have been able to achieve it because it had been taken from us. But I woke up and it wasn't just the people I talked to, like my entire team were calling me and be like, you know, I like had an army and they're like, no, we're going to work on this. And we ended up actually accelerating the program because everyone was coming in in shifts and we had this halo of people on Zoom all coordinating on data and the, it was remarkably successful. So we had, by it was March 30th, I got contacted saying we've got hits. And one by one, the different arms that we tested all showed successfully that we'd adapted those five original antibodies to be ultra, ultra potent binders against the novel coronavirus. And so we, we generated those and we've been rushing to get funding from the US government. We actually had a whole bunch of donations. So people just ended up donating like $150,000 to us, which again, I, my position is I think government should pay for this stuff, but I appreciate it because it let us pay for a series of studies while we were still waiting for the, the big government grants. And then we did this thing where we decided to send our antibodies out to five different groups because that way you have independent validation at multiple sources. And then also from my perspective, I made sure some of those groups were in the military, some of them are attached to the Gates Foundation, so that all of these interested parties would be one of the parties reporting back saying, yeah, these are remarkable. We just got results back that we have these ultra potent neutralizing antibodies. And we're about to be able to make a very positive announcement around funding, which gets us in a position of running a human trial with our drug uh, by the end of summer. You are a different kind of leader. I think just from my short time talking to you, you talk more about your team than anyone I've ever spoken to before. How have you been successful in building such an incredible team and kind of what makes them so special? Yeah, so I'm, I, we got here because of that remarkable team. So I've talked to you a little bit about Sarah Ives, who led the vaccine program for the Universal Vaccines, Sherrod Dariakia, and Jack Wang, who worked early on the COVID-19 program, Salsun Yosef, my chief science officer, and, and many other kind of remarkable people I'm lucky to work with. Um, like big picture in my strategy is I try to find people that really stand out to me, and I'm like, they're so good, they're scary. And I want to work with them because then I don't need to do that thing because they're so much better <laughs> than me at it that I can go work on other things. And I, I think I can kind of thank my father for help on understanding how to judge people pretty well. I grew up on a lake in uh, Guatemala, Lake Atitlan. And it was an indigenous village. We have a hotel and a restaurant there. And it was in the middle of a civil war. So my dad and my mom were running, uh, you know, innkeepers, hotel and a restaurant and you don't get the benefit of like CVs and LinkedIn or any of these things it was before the internet. And, you know, it was in the middle of the civil war. So the literacy wasn't great. So you had to find other ways to be, uh, to identify and identify people and be a good judge of character and understand when someone's exceptional at something. And I think I, I learned some of that from my dad. And so I, I take those tools with me to the United States and people laugh about this, but really there's not that much of a difference between running a restaurant in a hotel in Guatemala and running a biotechnology company. You have, you have a bodega of inventory of reagents or food, food stuffs. You have a staff of people that you need to find ways to organize and place successfully, find out where people are remarkable at and make them do that and not force someone to do something they're not good at. And you have to find a way to triage your clients and adapt to do marketing to make sure you have new inventory coming in and to juggle figure out what to focus on each day and make sure that the right priorities are being placed. And you have to be able to be a good judge of people, find those, those great people. 
for me, I've, I've benefited from having, you know, we have a very large network of companies that work with my company to do antibody discovery. So I've met a lot of people. I was also kind of lucky that I was one of the early pioneers of using computational immunology techniques to use high throughput sequencing genomic devices to analyze the immune system. And I published on a series of these different techniques. I think I published 34 papers. And because of that, I know a lot of people. People contacted me and I've done collaborations. So I had a big network where I could go find really remarkable people. And once someone kind of catches my attention, I basically do whatever I can to find a way to work with them. And then one thing that really I've benefited from is that there's this excellent biotechnologies master's program in the University of San Francisco. And I'm on the scientific advisory board of that program. Since 2014, I've probably had 65 interns from that program. These are master's students. They may have already had careers prior to coming to the program. And we set up a series of projects and it gives me an opportunity for them to A, know that they work well with my team. Um, everyone gets along, which is important. B, they get trained and, and also that we know that they're exceptional. So by the time, and I, I pay, I don't believe in unpaid work. So we pay all the interns and increase their salary each semester. So by the time we they're graduating, it doesn't actually cost that much more for us to just hire them. And we already know they're exceptional. And so through that approach, I've been able to hire 10 like really remarkable people and they've kind of come online fully trained and, you know, working well with the team. And I think that stuff's really important too, because you, you want to tighter people into a certain culture of uh, success where people have breathing room to like each, each person kind of needs their guitar solo. They need to be able to be awesome. They need to cooperate, but you also need to make sure that person has their own hero's journey and they see that there's a career trajectory for them, which is onwards and upwards. And luckily, you know, I'm 30 people right now. We're going to keep growing, but we work on cool projects and in a growing company, there's lots of opportunities for people with the mindset to achieve that. And I always just make sure there's lots of opportunities for promotions and working on cool projects and just understanding what it is that people want and finding a place to, align their desires and dreams with the dream superposition of what the company's goals are. And if you can do that the right way, the magic happens. Sounds like a culture that can really bring out the best in people. Um, what do you think your team would say about you? How, what's it like to work for Jake Lambda? Yeah. Jake wants everything at once than he wants it yesterday. Um, <laughs> so I think, I think people love the projects. We work on really cool things. We work on broad spectrum vaccines. We work on antibodies against the novel coronavirus. We work on anti-venom, like broad spectrum anti-venom. I think innovating in this space, we, we really are in the golden age of biotechnology and there's so many like remarkable low-hanging fruit opportunities. So I think the projects ignite passion in people and they're excited by them. And I, I kind of try to set it up so that everybody has some work that they do involving client programs, which is training and it's very valuable and it's interesting, but each person also has their own hard project that they may fail at and that's okay. But the idea is to push each person up against the bleeding edge of what is known. And then it's all on them. There's nobody giving them instructions. And I think that's just good training, whether the project is successful or not, but it tends to inspire people to work hard on trying to push hard on a hard problem. And every once in a while we have a breakthrough. So I think people like the projects. I think the common feedback is people are coming. I'm like, Oh, I want to get these things done. And people are like, Jake, pick two. You can't do eight. And, <laughs> and I have people surrounding me with that kind of feedback because I know that's important. I need to balance out my own weaknesses with other people's strengths. And so I think that's probably how people think about working with me. Want even more science stories? Head over to eureka.criver.com to listen to Sounds of Science, 
Join me, Mary Parker, as I interview drug discovery researchers, thought leaders on trending industry topics, and patients with a personal stake in the newest pharma research. I cover topics from horseshoe crab evolution to cancer treatment with guests who bring a big picture perspective to science stories. Tune in every month for Sounds of Science at eureka.criver.com. So what shaped you? What was your childhood like? What were you interested in? How did you think you became the person you are today? I grew up on Lake Atitlan. It's this beautiful lake with three volcanoes around it up in the Mayan highlands of Guatemala. My parents are both Americans. They're like hippie expats. And they they built this hotel and restaurant uh, in the late 70s before the Civil War had moved in and Santiago became occupied. In my childhood growing up, so Santiago was occupied by the military. The Civil War was was ongoing. So, you know, we were running a bed and breakfast, but there weren't that many tourists coming through. It's it's more bustling. Well, with the exception of now with the coronavirus, there's a lot more tourists now than there were when I was a child because of uh, instability and, and, and travel advisories. So a lot of my time was spent, you know, helping my parents run a business, which I think helped me in retrospect as an entrepreneur myself. Um, and then also, you know, spending time. There's you have a lot of quiet time. This is before the internet was available, and there weren't that many books um, that made their way down to Guatemala. So we kind of guarded them jealously when we we had access to them and shared them among our friends. I think if I had been grown up in the states, I think I probably people would have recognized that I was very good at math and computers at a young age, and I would have been pigeonholed to become that person. But down there, I spent time with um, artisans. Um, there's sort of the Zituil indigenous community have a lot of artists and there's like a Latin community and then um, like American expats who have a lot of hippies and stuff. And so I think, I think because I was immersed in a, you know, a lot of painting and yoga and swimming and hiking, I think that was probably good cross training for me. My mother's an oil painting artist. And I feel like that cross training gave me a certain degree of like I don't know, creative neurons that were stimulated that are helpful to me in making business decisions and in bioengineering and make me just think differently than I would have otherwise. I think the other big thing about Guatemala is that it's deeply multicultural. And so you end up trying to learn how to judge people or understand people when there may be communication barriers. And also just growing up in a restaurant, I've, I've learned to forgive people a little bit because people show up and they're in their worst possible mood when they need to use a restroom and they're hungry and they're tired. And, and that's how you meet them when they come through the door. And then you watch them transform once they've been fed and once they've put their stuff down. And you, you start realizing that when you're talking to someone and they're being a grouch, sometimes it's, it's situational and it's not the nature of who they are as a person. And I think that's a helpful thing to keep in mind when you're running a team or talking to clients or negotiating to be able to be to be gracious with limits, but to forgive people for momentary disruptions of their grace on their side. During that time of growing up and learning, was there a certain moment of inspiration or even maybe later on once you were in the U.S. that you think kind of led you to this area that you're so focused on now? Was there a person or a class or a conversation you think that maybe opened your eyes to this path? Yeah, sure. So when growing up in the village, I had childhood asthma and I had it pretty badly. And uh, that was uniquely challenging out in the villages. There are no hospitals. The closest hospital was this one up all the way across the lake. 
and up a, an hour-long drive up the cliffs of the volcanoes and then up into the highlands. And so we wouldn't go there. If I had an asthma attack, I, I had this little inhaler at home or this nebulizer. And if the power went out, which often happens in rainy season in Guatemala when there's storms, then you're, you, you, it's tough. And so I, I would spend time on those nights thinking a lot about immunology, like why, why had my own immune system betrayed me? Uh, and then in the village, the same thing, you know, I, I, my parents were by no means wealthy, but I could always afford medicine. And there, there were, I can't tell you how many times I had amoebas and giardia and worms. And these things are super treatable. But a lot of the people in the village could not afford the medicine. And so I was acutely aware of that. that it, like the missing medicine could make so much difference. And I think I, I grew to appreciate it even more as I grew up, as I went to the United States for college and then I came back repeatedly as I was doing collaborations with the University of San Carlos and Professor Aaron Calgua, including the, the vaccine research that's featured in the Netflix documentary. I noticed that the, the younger generation is at the Willis ended up being like a foot taller than their parents. It was like, honestly, astonishing. When I was a little boy growing up, I, would, I could look all the way across the Mercado and I could see my brother on the other side because we were much taller than the people in town. And that was changing. So that was not a property of genetics. That was a property of malnutrition and chronic infection. The thing that had changed was that they started chlorinating the town water and they started doing deworming medicine routinely. This is cheap, easy medicine. And it, it affected people's lives because if you grow into a more healthy body and you can spend more of your money and time and resources on creating new things and less time on fixing your broken self, then, then the community can be more productive. And so I was always struck by that. I think asthma medicine works really well if you have it. And so it sort of made me an optimist and a believer in the missing medicine. If the medicine just existed you'll be okay. And maybe it's not in your room, the room, maybe there's not a clinic, maybe it hasn't been invented yet, but we can make that medicine and it can make things better. And then we should do it. That making effective medicines to eliminate the pathogen burden on humanity will allow more of our resources to go towards better creativity and, and, and building new things. So I've always felt very passionate about that. I also just feel like we're in the middle of the biotechnology revolution and this should be a consequence of this golden age that we should create a largely plus pathogen for humanity. It's, it's achievable. Back in 1980, we declared the end of smallpox. There are other pathogens that we have nearly eradicated and our new technologies should make it easier for us to finish the job. And that's why I focus on universal vaccine technologies, broad spectrum antibody engineering tools, even the anti-venom program. I think there are, opportunities to create these devastating decapitation strikes against some of our ancient pathogenic enemies that we shouldn't have to put up with anymore. And we should, our children should look to these pathogens as archaic, as something of the past, much, by, much like the way you think of the plague as something of, of the Middle Ages that really shouldn't have any place in modern society. Wow, you're so inspiring and, and optimistic. It, it gives me so much hope. And you're quite accomplished. Is there something that you feel most proud of? I think I think the thing I feel most proud of is that I was I you know you have these ideas but ideas are worthless without putting foundations under them and I think I've been able to gather together a group of like-minded people who share my passions and are able to make these things come true. You know, I've had frustrating moments where I realized that I had an idea, but like I can do laboratory work, but my team, every single person on my team is better than I am in the lab. And that's a good thing because my own hands would fail to reach my dreams. 
And I feel very fortunate to have a remarkable set of team members who can share those dreams with me and we're willing to work on them together because then they manifest. And for me, that is ultimately the most gratifying thing. I think nothing would annoy me more than having a good idea and have it wasted because of failure of execution. And, and I am an optimist. I see these opportunities. I think I'm an optimist, but like there's realism behind it. Like the Guinea worm is largely being eradicated through straws. It doesn't take much to solve these problems. They're just neglected. And I think the thing that annoys me the most is that people say neglected tropical diseases are neglected because there's no money. And that's just not true. It's just that there's not as much money as, let's say, oncology. So a company may, if, if their primary goal is to maximize revenue, they may feel there's an opportunity cost. They go, why should we go after antivenom if we can make a little, if we could maybe help a tenth as many people, but we can make a little bit more money, let's just go after oncology. And I'm not saying oncology therapies are bad. That's really good. And I'm glad we're making therapies there. But I think it's worthwhile to stop thinking about medicine as though, uh, how, how can we make a better blockbuster, right? How can we make a billion dollars a year on a drug? And I think if you can instead ask the question, can we make it a working business? Like, can we make antivenom that could help treat the world? And can we make, can we make it better than a restaurant? And I think if you think that way, there's actually a lot more business opportunities that would be sustainable and effective and could do a lot of good right now with these remarkable technologies. They're amazing what we're doing, but we're focusing so much myopically on a limited area of biology that largely affects the rich. And rich people are fine. I'm happy to make medicine for them, but there's a lot of other people out there and we could sort of adapt more like a Ford model to create large volumes of medicines. It's not the case that people in Santiago don't have money. I think that's a disrespectful attitude towards neglected tropical diseases. They can afford to pay for medicine. They just can't afford to pay ridiculous prices for medicine. So part of my objectives with Centivax, and I think I am, I'm proud of the strategy, is that uh, we are aiming to make exceptional medicines, but then we're also aiming to price them way, a way that the world can afford. And we have the luxury of doing this because I never took on venture capital. We have non-dilutive passive funding for our vaccine program, uh, our antibody therapeutic program for COVID-19, and our anti-venom program. There's certain other areas where I don't have a non-dilutive path. I'll have to raise some money to accomplish those tasks. But for those things, I think if you can get a company, you can keep it small. So you take advantage of contract research organizations as partners rather than having to try to build everything internally then you don't build a company that has 30,000 people or 50,000 people. And if you don't have 30,000 people, you're not forced to only work on a metabolism of blockbusters. You can afford to contemplate to say, okay, well, antivenom is only going to make $120 million a year. They're like, well, so what? That's actually still pretty good if your company is small and strategic. And then you, you can do a lot of good in the world and you can make money. Like I'm a business person. I don't believe in doing stuff that doesn't make money uh, just because you can't survive on grants. I, if you, as soon as you can be profitable enough to keep going, you have an immense amount of power to work on more things and treat more diseases. But you don't need to make a ridiculous amount of money. For, for instance, with the COVID-19 program, we're contemplating releasing that at some percentage above cost of goods. The cost of goods for uh, an antibody therapy is about $100 a gram. And we're looking at giving less than a, a, a gram of our medicine to patients. Antibodies normally are charged at like $9,000 a dose. So all of that extra money is not the cost of goods. That's corporate profits and recuperating R&D costs. And that's you know, necessary if you have investors and shareholders who insist on maximizing returns. But uh, it's, it's not actually necessary in our case. We could actually charge $200 a dose. And, and then the benefit of that is that everybody receives medicine. It's much more accessible globally. 
we'll be able to produce a lot more doses because people will choose our medicine over alternatives. And for a, an outbreak, it is essential that the whole world gets treated. If the pandemic has taught us nothing else, it is that the national boundaries and class boundaries are not respected by this virus. And until everybody's receiving treatment, we're not really going to solve the problem. Like even a psychopath should agree with me about that. Even if they don't care about anybody else, they should realize, hey, if we don't treat everybody, this thing is just going to keep circulating. And so it is a rational solution and not just a compassionate one that we should charge less and adopt more like a Ford model to produce a very large number of doses and distribute them globally. And that's something that the COVID crisis calls for. That's something I'm going to do as well for the anti-venom programs we're developing. And we're going to be contemplating for some of our other programs. So again, I'm intending on becoming profitable, but I don't want to obsessively try to maximize profit over impact. I think the second criteria is important too. And we have these low-hanging fruit because of the biotechnology revolution that we should execute upon, that we have in our hands now the capability to create a safer world. And we owe it to ourselves to accomplish that. Well, you've certainly given us a lot to think about. I'm really thankful for the time that you've spent with us here today at Vital Science. And uh, thank you to you and your team for everything you do every day. We really appreciate your commitment to improving human health. Okay, thanks for having me on. I hope you enjoyed hearing Jake's story how growing up in Guatemala shaped his beliefs on healthcare, and how helping run a family business has developed his skills as a leader. We look forward to hearing about future developments from Jake and his team. Do you have a suggestion, episode idea, or a great story to tell? Contact us at vitalscience at crl.com. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at seariver.com slash vital science podcast. Also, be sure to check out our sister podcast, Sounds of Science, focusing on innovation and trends in the life science industry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Vital Science. I'm Gina Mullane. Have a great day.